One of the singspiration, one of the songs of the singspiration, was a song called "Treasures." No worries, I'm not going to sing it. Um, but it's beautiful words, and it really illustrates a point that I want to bring home about this story tonight. Let me read it for you. One by one, he took them from me, all the things I valued most, until I was empty-handed. Every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highways grieving in my rags and poverty till I heard his voice inviting, lift your empty hands to me. So I held my hands toward heaven and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. What you're going to find in the story is, and these are Naomi's words, that I went away full, but I came back empty. Have you ever felt that way in your life? Have you ever felt like you were full and now you're empty? If you follow the story in chapter 1 in the book of Ruth, Naomi, who is an Israelite, has a series of choices that all go wrong um, and things get, go from bad to worse. A series really of losses. Um, she first loses her husband. Secondly, she loses her sons. Um, even before that, she lost her supply of food in Bethlehem and then end up one of her daughter-in-laws turns back and she has only Ruth left. It, it's just a series of losses, one after the other. It doesn't say in the scriptures, but I'm thinking because Naomi is like everybody else as a human, that she probably had expectations. I, I think because she knew the God of Israel, that she expected probably to go through some difficulties in her life, but certainly not these ones. And maybe this, certainly not all of these in back-to-back scenarios. Um, she has lack of food. Uh, you live in Bethlehem, and the name of the town means house of bread, and they have no bread. Um, so you're wondering what's God up to if you can't get bread in the place where bread is most abundant. Um, she loses her husband. Now, again, it's bad enough in any culture, in any way that you look at it, to lose your husband. But when you lose your husband in a culture where women don't make a living by and large, um, or do things on their own to provide for their family, it's a very difficult circumstance. But in her case, she was blessed because God had given her two sons, and those two sons could step into the dad's place and, and provide for them. Um, but after a amount of years pass by, she loses those two sons, and now she only has two daughters. And don't forget, her daughters aren't Jewish. Uh, her daughter-in-laws, they're, they're Gentile. And of all things, they're Moabitesses, which are God's, one of the worst enemies of God's people who didn't give them bread and water when they were in the wilderness on their way out of the promised land, I mean, into the promised land. So she had expectations. I'm sure she thought she'd have a husband that would be with her most of her life, that she'd have a family. She certainly probably expected never to die before her sons. She probably never expected, originally, to be honest with you, as great as Ruth turned out to be, she probably never thought that her son would marry unsaved women. She probably never thought that would happen. She never saw herself, her name means pleasantness. 
And by the end of the chapter, she's nothing but bitterness. And, and I don't think that she'd ever expected that all those things would take place. But the Bible says that that's exactly what it happened in her life. Now, here's the question. What do you do when God brings, and this is her words, calamity into your life? What do you do when God brings disasters? He brings unexplained tragedies, and maybe not just one, but more than one. Maybe uh, a series of them. Maybe a lot of pressures, a lot of things that leave your life uncertain. You're not sure what's going to happen. You don't know what the future will bring. What do you do? Well, what you're going to find in this passage is, is that she does what she should not do. And chapter one, to be honest with you, is a chapter about what you shouldn't do when you go through difficulties in your life as a believer. Now, the book starts off with two, actually, there's only two references to God directly in the entire book. One, if you want to mark it down, is in chapter 1 and verse 6, and the other one is in chapter 4 and verse 13. Those are the only direct mentions of the name of God or the Lord. And in one, it's God has brought calamity, and the other one is God has brought blessing. And so by the end of the book, here's what you see, and even starting to see it by the end of chapter one, there's a huge reversal. Um, she goes from bitterness back to pleasantness. Um, and she goes from not having food, not having a husband, not having sons, no heir to her, her lineage, no heir to their family, which eventually would bring them aside. There is no heir. She goes from no home, no food, no sons, no husband, no hope, no future, none of those things. And by the end of the book, in four short chapters, everything in her life exactly, completely turns around. You might say, Pastor Walker, that happened to everybody. It doesn't happen to everyone, but here's the point I want you to get. Even though it may not happen every time, here's, can I tell you this? God always has purposes. God always has purposes for everything that he does. Therefore, if you want an outline of the book, let me give it to you, and it'll give you the bigger story picture. Chapter one is a need for a kinsman redeemer. Why does she need one, Right? The second chapter is the search for a kinsman redeemer. Chapter three is the promise of a kinsman redeemer. And chapter four is the accomplishment of the kinsman redeemer. Because, let me, what? This is not a book about a romance between Ruth and Boaz, although they do get married. This is not a book just to teach you how to get through trials, although we can learn a lot from Naomi. Those are sub-themes, and these are, those are applications, but they are not the main interpretation. Can I give you a hint about Bible study? Don't open the book every morning when you read it, and I'm assuming you do. When you open the book and read the Bible, don't look for what can I get out of it. What you get out of it is a result. It's not the aim. The aim is not to get something out of it for you. The aim is what does it really mean, okay? What does it mean? Because the best application comes from the right interpretation. If you start with application, you're going to get the wrong one because you can't know what God wanted you to apply your life to, to in this passage until you know what it means. 
So it's not a book about romance. It isn't about, hey, you can ultimately get married and God can take care of all your needs. You can turn your life around and he can turn your life from bitterness to happiness. It's not that. Those are, those are the common things people preach. But that's not the point of it. This book has a place in redemptive history. It's between Joshua and, the, and, and during the judge's time and before 1 Samuel. This is an apologetic for how David should be the king of Israel. And I told you that last week about the 10 generations and all that took place. This is how God, remember the promise? That one day the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And without David being brought as king, there is no greater David Jesus, there is no Messiah, there is no salvation. All of that is null and void. And this is how it starts. And it starts with a woman whose life becomes completely hopeless and makes all the wrong choices. See, now if you're here tonight... Here, I want you to know this. God hasn't written you off. You may be going through difficulty and you think, in other words, you have the wrong perspective of all the things going on in your life, even though they're not the things you expected, nor would you ever want them. Can I tell you, sometimes the difficulties, the setbacks are set ups by God. The setbacks are, God is doing great things in your life, but it certainly up front doesn't look like it. So God can be using you and all the things you're going through right now, if you will trust him, he can do great things for you and in you and through you with it. Let me show you how the story works. Verse one, the days when judges ruled there. What do we know about the judges? What did we say last week? What's the ruling thought, the, the one ruling verse in the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel, Right? There was no king because the judges ruled. Now, let me tell you this. A famine comes in the land. And there's a man of Bethlehem in Judah. He was an Etherite, which is Bethlehem, the, the confines of Bethlehem, which is about five miles south of Jerusalem. In Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. Now, let me stop there. See, okay, ready? Class discussion. Tell me what you know about the significance of what famines mean in the Bible. There's a famine in the land. Yes. Yes, that's exactly a great definition. There is no food, or certainly not enough food, right? So people are starving, they're going without, and that's an oxymoron. Why would there be no bread, or it's literally in Hebrew, not food, it's the word bread. Why is there no bread in the house of bread? Why, why is that strange? Yes. Well, there is no rain, that's definitely true. Keep going. What's the theological, what does the Bible say? What does God say with his covenant with Israel? Why do famines come? Now, now listen, not true everywhere else, but we're talking about the promised land. This is God's land, God's people. What does he say that his people should know when famines come to the promised land? What does he say, Greg? Usually a sign of judgment. Judgment for what? Sin. Yes. Is that what you're going to say? Yes, God is angry. It's a judgment for sin. Read 1 Kings chapter 8. Read Deuteronomy 28. Read Leviticus 26. All those chapters will tell you that when you have famine in the land, especially there's no bread in the house of bread, then you know this, God is angry, right? Because what is the judges about? This is their spirituality right here. Up and down, up and down, idolatry, deliverance, idolatry, deliverance. Obviously, this is during one of the times of idolatry. 
and there's famine in the land. And what every Jew who knew Torah should know is that when there's famine, what should be your response? Repentance. You should run to God. You should get on your knees. You should say, God, forgive us. We, don't, I, you know, we have sinned against you because that's what famine means. Now, listen to the story. Uh, he's in Bethlehem, and he sojourns and leaves to go to Moab. What's the problem with that statement? Not only is Moab the enemy of God, people, but what is he doing where is he going? What did Jonah do when he faced? Where did he go? When God told him to go to Tarshish, where did he go? Yeah, the opposite way. So God wants, when his people, his, his job is not to go somewhere else, what? It's to be someone else, right? That's what he needs to do. But instead of running to God and, and, and turning back to God, he turns his back on God. He goes out of there. Now listen, he, let me tell you this. If you want to outline, if you were going to say tonight, what are the three factors that make people or turn people as believers to be empty? Or as all we would say, why are lost people empty and need a, a redeemer? Why is it that chapter one is all about, here's why people need a kinsman redeemer because their lives are empty. What makes a person's life empty? You know what the first one is? worldliness. What do you mean by worldliness? Because here's Elimelech, and you know what he's doing? He's a man from Judah. He's a Bethlehemite. He knows God and Torah, but what he does is what everybody else does in the world. When they get in trouble and they have a famine, he does what everybody else does. And it seems, listen, it seems to be the practical thing to do. If you're going to take care of your family and there's no bread where you live, then you're going to take them where there is bread. Now that seems practical, but can I tell you this? Listen, a lot of times what we think is practical that we want to do, that we think works, is often worldly wisdom. It seems practical, but it wasn't biblical. It's not what God wanted him to do. And can I tell you, listen to this, and that one decision, that first decision that he made set off a chain reaction of a lot of other decisions, hear me, that cost him his life. It cost the lives of his two sons and brought a lot of much, much hardship and difficulty on his wife and even his daughter-in-laws. Why? Because here's how he responded. Instead of running to God, he ran from God to the land of his enemies. Now listen, you know what Elimelech means? El in scripture, E-L, is God. Remember the prayer? Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech. Yahalam, it means king. Molech, I mean, Olam means king of the universe. So here, here's what it is. El Molech. You know what his name means? God is king. He's living in a time of judges, there is no king, and his name means God is king. So you know what the expectation is? The expectation is, even though everybody else is forsaking God as their king and doing what's right in their eyes, you, your name says that you believe the different. You, you're different. God is king. But you know what? He's no different than anybody else. He lives as if he's making all of his own. He's, he's doing what is right in his own eyes. And truthfully, he's not living up to his name because God is king. And so here's what he does. He runs and does what he thinks is practical but it isn't biblical. I have talked to 
young ladies who graduate college, don't get married, the years pass, and here's what they think. They find a really nice guy who's really well-mannered and really cares for them, and they think, listen, I'm going to date this guy, and I won't get too serious with him, but he is a really nice guy, and they end up dating him and falling in love with him and say, you know, listen, I know eventually and when I marry him, he's going to become a believer. And they make that, they think it's practical because they're getting older. This could be their last chance. It seems practical, doesn't it? It's not biblical, though, because they shouldn't marry someone who's lost, Right? And, and you could go on and on and on about decisions that people think, oh, this would be a practical decision, and I'm going to move here, and I'm going to take this job, and I'm going to do this, but they don't know if there's any good church for their family to be raised in. They don't know if there's any good schools or places to be. They don't know if they're going to have the same, and, and see, people make decisions, and it seems practical because I'm going to get a raise, and we could have a better standard of living. And, and it seems practical. And it may or may not be, but listen, it may not be biblical. And and here's the thing. The question is, are you using God's wisdom or man's wisdom? See, he said, God is my king. But the truth for Elimelech, he was king. He was the king in his family. He was making those decisions. And instead of running to God, he ran from God. And And that's what happens. That's the first step toward moving to emptiness is that you become like everybody else, and that's how you respond to the difficulties in your life. And can I tell you, that's why you need a redeemer. Because we get just like the world, and we make decisions, and it takes us further away from God, and we become more and more empty all the time. But the second one, if you want to write down number two, is hopelessness. Can I tell you, they're progressive. Worldliness and the decisions we make Here's what it leads to. It leads to hopelessness. So here's what the Bible says. She arose, in verse 6, with her daughter-in-law. They returned to Moab. Here's what they hear. That in the fields of Moab, the Lord had visited his people. Remember our word visited? We talked about it last Sunday. Remember Zechariah's prophecy that God had visited his people? And Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, if you only knew the time of God's visitation, you missed it. Visiting means that God's going to come and he's going to deliver you and judge your enemies. And here's what they, now now listen, you ever think of this? How in the world when she's working in the fields of Moab, which is far on the other side of the Jordan, away from God's people, how does she know that miraculous things are taking place in Bethlehem? Because God providentially brought it to her. Somebody just happened to tell her that back home, Things are getting better. Now listen, hear hear this. Can you imagine when she gets this news? You know this? She has been out of Bethlehem for 10 years. See, Elimelech made a decision that they were going to, and the Bible uses this word, sojourn. Sojourn is a temporary stay in a place that you're not a part of. So temporary stay may be a few months, maybe a year But see, you know what he did? Worldliness, he made a decision. He got himself and his family somewhere. He dies, his son dies, and and he never expected, he never planned that his family would be there without him and his sons for a decade. And so many years of their lives have been wasted. But God's not done with them yet. God begins to initiate bringing her back. 
She gets the message, she hears it, and so she goes back and she has two daughter-in-laws and she tells both of them, go back to your mother's house. Now watch, not to their father's house. Three, the mother's house phrase is only used three times in the Old Testament altogether. It's a very uncommon phrase. She's going back to a situation not be- much better than theirs. She's sending them back to a place that seemingly the husband is already dead there, right? And back to foreign gods. Moab, as a country, worshipped the idolatrous god called Chemosh. They were very, very famous for worship- worshipping their god with immorality, if you read Numbers 25, that's what happened. And, and men of Israel were wearing, marrying Moabitess women and having relationships with them. And in one day, it says, the Bible said, God struck down 24,000 Israelite men in judgment. Numbers 25. The two boys of hers, Melon and Chilion, they reenact that whole story because they marry Moabitess women when they shouldn't have done that, and they end up dying. So you can almost picture the whole scene as being a judgment from God. But God's not done with her because he's bringing her back. But she, listen to this, she thinks she's in an impossible situation. She thinks her life is hopeless. She has no husband, no sons, no heir. She's gonna go back home and how in the world would she do better with two Moabitess women by her side? She tells them to go back, go back home. Maybe God will bless you. You know the story. Oprah, Oprah who uh, stays with, doesn't stay with her, but Ruth does. And I won't even get into all that tonight. But she comes back and she says, turn back, my daughters, verse 11. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons? And you saw that on the screen. You can't wait till they're grown up. You can't, my daughter's exceeding bitter for me, to, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone up against me. Now listen, you know what happens when, what's a sign of emptiness? Not only worldliness in your choices, but hopelessness. You know what hopelessness is? Hopelessness is being blind to what God is doing in your life. She doesn't realize that God is doing amazing things to bring reversal and redemption to her whole family. She doesn't realize that God is going to use her and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is a Gentile, to bring ultimately the line of Messiah to fulfillment and end up saving and being the redeemer of the whole world. She doesn't even know by the end of the book that her life will be so reversed that people are gonna, she's gonna be put in the Matthew genealogy and through her will be King David. She doesn't remember, she's not only gonna change David Uh, change Israel, but her life is going to be used by God to change the world. But she can't see all that. You know why? Because she's completely lost hope. She has gone down so, her worldliness and her husband's have brought her so far from God that now she thinks that she is hopeless. She's blind to really all the things God is doing. And, And watch, not only is she blind to it, but she blames him for everything. Almighty, it's like a court case. He has spoken against me. He has brought calamity from me. See, she's hopeless. And see, you can get there in your life. You can come to the place where your decisions and the worldliness and the things that you've done, you have started to run from God instead of running. You've abandoned him. And little by little, you keep moving away, keep moving away from God. And it becomes more and more hopeless. Your situation becomes more and more impossible. And you think, how could this ever turn around? 
And can I tell you this? I could tell you story after story, and that's why I watch people in my ministry over all these years. I've seen this cycle. They begin to get hopeless. They don't want to repent. They don't want to do what God wants them to do. They don't want to turn around. They don't want to really be committed. And you know what? They come into church less and less. They get less and less devoted to God. They get more and more worldly, more and more hopeless. And pretty soon, they're not even around anymore. And people start asking, what happened to so-and-so? Where are they? And, you know, Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, and they go, is that her? (laughs) Is that really Naomi? They're going like, oh, I thought you were long gone. See, I've had it. You have people who are away from church, and years and years, maybe they come back later, and you go, what happened to you? Where have you been? But see, it doesn't happen overnight. Ten years. See, it's so gradual when you move away from God. And you start to abandon him. You make these decisions, and these decisions become other decisions. And they start bringing despair and discouragement in your life and depression. And you're, you start living by your feelings, and you're not going to go to church anymore. God really has hurt me, and why would I go to church to worship him? Look what he's done to me. I've talked to someone not even a year ago whose life fell apart, and they said they really didn't know for sure that they could believe in him anymore. I said, really? I said, do you think this is him? And you had nothing to do with it. You never see in chapter one, Naomi saying, oh yeah, you know what, this has happened to me and God's done it, but you know, here's what I did. And you know what, we never should have made that choice. And wow, you know what, down that, we, that turning point was really a bad, I never see her saying that in this chapter. Because she starts, that's what hopelessness does. It blinds you to the good things God's doing behind the scenes that you can't catch. Because you're not seeing, all you see is your pain and your difficulty, truthfully, and the consequence of your choices. And you can't see what God's up to. Worldliness leads to hopelessness. Listen, hopelessness leads to bitterness. Those are the three factors that bring people to emptiness. Worldliness, hopelessness, and bitterness. And she says, listen, don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm back in Bethlehem physically, but I'm not back here spiritually. See? I, I am angry at God. I'm bitter. She says, call me Mara. Do you know anything about Mara? Remember when the Israelites came out of the uh, Egyptian bondage and they came to a place where there was water and they started drinking? It was terribly what? It was bitter. And that place was called Mara, right? And that's where God did the miraculous thing. Remember where he made the bitter water sweet? So if you, if you take your name, and maybe that's why she made the analogy, she said, call me this, because here's the bitterness. But see, God says, and just like I did back then, I'm going to take the bitter thing, and I'm going to make it sweet. And by the end of the book, he has transformed her bitterness into sweetness, pleasantness, which is her name. See, that's what God holds out tonight to us, that no matter what famine you're facing, no matter difficult, here's what he says, don't run from me. Run to me. See that the famine in your life possibly could be because of some of the choices that you've been making in your life, that you're running ahead of me or you're running behind me. And, you, and, and listen, don't let it bring you to hopelessness because hopeless needs to emptiness. I came, I left full, and now I've come back bitter uh, and, and empty, and bitterness is why. So worldliness, hopeful, hopeful, hopelessness, I should say, and bitterness She can't see God, and so she blames God. Um, Someone said the hiddenness of God is that God is doing behind the scenes what you can't see with your eyes. There is a hymn in our hymn book 
called God Works in Mysterious Ways. The author of it battled with depression all of his life to the point where two different times he tried to kill himself. But he wrote some beautiful hymns in our hymn book. One of it in the stanzas in God's Mysterious Ways goes like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. But see, Naomi was so bitter at what happened to her and the things that took place and why God didn't stop it. And where was he when she needed him? She was so bitter that she couldn't see behind the frowning providence to his smiling face. But it was there all along. It was there all along. Tonight, where are you? Are you in any of those places? Maybe you're at the first stage and you're at the place of worldliness. You're trying, oh, that's a practical idea. You know, this would make sense. And without God and his word in your life, maybe it would. But come back to say, hey, God, I'm gonna start making decisions, not if they seem practical or pragmatic, but are they biblical? Do they match what you want? They may not match what everybody else is doing or what the, everyone in the world would do, but what does your word say how I should respond to these difficulties I face? Maybe you're already at the hopeless stage and you're going like, is this ever gonna change? Is this ever gonna get any better? Is this, is this it for me? See, maybe if it's time to put your story in his big story and see how the sufferings and the difficulties and the problems you're facing can be used in your life. Maybe you're at the part where you're already bitter and everybody who's around you knows it because it isn't hard to see because it taints your relationships, your marriage, your kids, your friendships. You're not really into serving God and others. I mean, you're, you're just bitter about what God has done or maybe not done in your life. And you're judging the Lord by your feeble sense. You can't see beyond the frowning providence to his smiling face. I would say tonight, maybe this famine that is in your life is to open your eyes. It's a wake-up call. And God says, you know why I brought you here tonight? Because like Naomi, you need to come back to Bethlehem, not just physically, but spiritually. You need to say, God, I, understand what, I don't understand all that you're doing, but I know why you're doing it, for your glory and my good, and I submit to all of it. See, that's why we need a kinsman redeemer. We need someone who's going to take our life and by his grace turn it all around when we learn to put our trust in him. The question for Naomi was, would she go back to Bethlehem? And if she did, would she learn to trust God again? Not knowing how it's going to turn out. And the question is, will you come home and do the same? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the lessons of Ruth 1. I don't know tonight with those here or those watching on the live stream, perhaps there are some tonight who are, they're running. Like Jonah, they're running. Lord, we know that famines have a reason, a purpose, because the prodigal son had all that money and he wasted it and then a famine came in the land. But the famine was what drove him to go home. And he responded to that famine with repentance. That's exactly what you want us to do. I don't know tonight who's facing a famine. A lot of struggles, losses, difficulties. Father, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, 
that famine can lead to worldliness, hopelessness, and bitterness. And there might be someone here tonight that they would say, I'm just running on empty. I remember the days when I were full, but that's no longer. Father, may they come back to you, repent and seek you, that you might fill them once again with yourself. Fill them with your word. Fill them with your spirit, that you might do a great reversal in their lives for your glory, the glory of your story. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.